Hello, and welcome to the Always Already podcast. We're your hosts, Rachel. Rachel. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's Emily. And Rachel (laughs) slash John. (laughs) Meow. And my cat, Ripley. (laughs) Emily has an amazing cat named Ripley. She's not on air today, though. That was a joke. (laughs) Well, I think she would be great with this stuff, though. She's a really big fan of Batman. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So what are we reading? Um, So today we're reading Bembe's um, On the Post Colony, and in particular we're reading the introduction, Time on the Move, Chapter 5, Out of the World, and Chapter 6, God's Phallus. And kind of the conclusion. And kind of the conclusion. Well, I read the conclusion. I read the conclusion. Rachel also read the conclusion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've just discovered that we maybe skipped over the perhaps most essential chapter of this yeah, book, so we apologize. that's okay. <laughs> but that's interesting. It's like postmodern of us. Like Very pomo. some of the other chapters. Totes. Um, Totes pomo. So we have a listener who suggested this uh, um, that I forget who it is, so you all keep talking and I'm going to look that up. <clears throat> what should we talk about? Well, it's not raining about Patreon. Today. It was raining earlier. Oh yeah, Patreon. Just a reminder: uh, if you've not heard, (laughs) you've not heard about our new neoliberal campaign to pay ourselves for our work here. Work broadly construed in air quotes. Effective. Uh, We have a Patreon account. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, you can find us at patreon.com slash alwaysalreadypodcast. Uh, We accept pledges per episode. Your cadences are really Ira Glassy right now. Oh, really? Yeah. I've been practicing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think I could get a job at NPR? (laughs) Definitely. If I can be Terry The only thing I have on my resume is this. (laughs) (laughs) Only. Well, soon enough, you'll have another podcast on your resume. That's true. And I guess I could technically put the crossover synthesis extravaganza, right? Like, I I appear on Theory for Turnbull's podcast. That's good. But yes, good new books. Good, subtle promotion. Mm -mm. Yes, yes. Uh, So speaking (laughs) of not subtle promotions, uh, we should thank our current patrons, uh, the only person that's actually claimed their reward is David Ferris, so th- extra special shout-out thank you to David. Um, but we also have a couple others who we think just didn't claim it, even though they should have, but we won't use their full names, so thank you also to Bunny, Zach, and Laika. And Anna. And Anna, right. How could I forget? Uh, so thank you, folks. Thanks, Anna. Thank and you. And Bunny, Zach, and Laika. Um, and also thank you to Taija, who is the person who suggested that we read Mbembe. And we have another suggestion from Taija that we might read down the road. What's that suggestion? It's a secret. Oh, cool. It's not a secret. It's on our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. And if you go to upcoming episodes, you can see the things we're going to talk about at some point in the future. And cool. one of those is a Taija suggestion. In awesome. addition to the Mbembe. Thanks, Taija. All right. Um, so we'll take a break, and, and someone will do a summary, and we'll talk about Mbembe. Someone may do a summary. <laughs> I'm kidding. There'll be a summary. <laughs> Mbembe's book on the post-colony is incredibly rich and vast in its scope, so I'll walk us through some of the major questions from the chapters we read and then try to draw out a few of his conclusions. Um, in the introduction to the book, titled Time on the Move, Mbembe poses two major problematics – First, the thing called the post-colony, and second, the thing called Africa. So, small topics. (laughs) He asks how it is that Africa has on one hand constituted the condition of possibility for the West, and yet simultaneously can only be understood as negation or impossibility. This problem arises in discourse on subjectivity, 
i.e. Africa always constitutes the absolute other, in Discourse on Human Nature, where Africa always constitutes the animal or the monstrous, and in Discourse on Reason or Rationality, where Africa constitutes the negation of reason. Mbembe raises two primary objections that guide the inquiry of the book. First, that social theory has failed to account for time as lived, multiple, and simultaneous, and thus has been unable to free discourse on Africa from categorization into either permanence or change. And second, that social theory's preference for generalizing makes conclusions about Africa somewhat paradoxical. They must be intelligible according to a set of conceptual structures and representations that have been quote, used precisely to deny African societies any historical depth and to define them as radically other. For Mbembe, then, the questions to ask are, and I quote again, what is the set of particular signs that confers on the current African age its character of urgency, its distinctive mark, its eccentricities, its vocabularies, and its magic, and make it both a source of terror, astonishment, and hilarity at once, what gives this set of things significations that all can share? In what language are these significations expressed? And how can these languages be deciphered? These questions ultimately lead Mbembe to conclude the book by suggesting that we reframe the term post-colony itself. Once unmoored from its Eurocentric historicism, we must say, quote, that the post-colony is a period of embedding, a space of proliferation that is not solely disorder, chance, and madness, but emerges from a sort of violent gust with its languages, its beauty, and ugliness, its ways of summing up the world. Uh, much of our discussion in this episode centers around Chapter 5, Out of the, out of the World. Uh, in this chapter, Mbembe considers what he calls a phenomenology of violence, and he does so vis-a-vis present-day Africa and its colonial becomings, if you will. He argues that we can think about colonial violence as an economy of language or verbal economy where Africa and the African subject are simultaneously hollowed and yet enact the most brutal and violent self-crucifying aspects of the colonizer. Uh, He argues that to have been colonized is to have dwelt close to death. Violence is amplified in the arbitrariness of those conditions of dwelling. For Mbembe, this kind of death, the kind that combines the emptying or negation of the subject with the violent mutilation of the flesh, troubles the temporality of the colony. Uh, We must ask what comes after the colony, what death does one die after, and these questions are um, somewhat difficult, if not impossible, for Mbembe. And in, in, in attempting to answer these questions, Mbembe draws on rich passages from accounts of colonizers, juxtaposing vivid descriptions of hunting with descriptions of the lives of the African others. There is much more to be said about this book than we were able to get through in one episode, but we hope you enjoy our discussion on this very small slice of it. Thank you. Okay, so this was really hard reading. I think a lot of it went over my head. I think so as well. But we were just reviewing the email from the person who recommended it, and I think that was kind of the what what they called it a sort of alienating, I think was the term they used, text. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I agree to an extent. Yeah. I was... Uh, the arc is kind of a little obscure. Uh, I don't know. Or maybe yeah. it's like 
buried or something. I think it's uh, smarter than I am. <laughs> is I don't think it's either of those two things. But in an attempt to try to understand an arc, one question that uh, I know I had um, that we talked about kind of using as a way in. So chapter six is God's phallus. It's the last chapter of the book. And, like, it's all about understanding um, power and phantasm and, like, the arc from Judaism to Christianity as Mbembe reads it. There's, like, no explicit or clear connection made between that and, like, the phenomenology of colonial violence or, like, the post-colony or even the colony. Mm -hmm. Like, none of that's explicit. So I guess my question for the two of you, then, is why do we think the final chapter before the conclusion is the God's Phallicist chapter that doesn't have this explicit connection to colonization, phenomenology, violence, so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. I mean, I wonder if it relates to his broader project of, like, negation and you mentioned the word time. Like, if he's trying to kind of... Yes, I did. I'm very smart. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know you're smart when you're like, so what about temporality? I know. What about spatio-temporality? What about the thing with clocks... (laughs) <laughs> and minutes time time yes time yes, thank time. you now I have Pink Floyd playing in my head but that's okay I saw a Pink Floyd cover band last weekend guys whoa clearly we're having a great time with this book okay. alright oh, so, sorry Rachel I interrupted no, I think that that all I had to say was the word time actually um I mean, in a way, like that arc from Judaism to Christianity it's in some ways I wonder if he's constructing a history using the concept of time he discusses in chapter five, which is mm. um, periods, not as these discrete linear things, but as like a intersection of all different um, exchanges and experiences happening at once. I want to find that quotation because, um, or maybe that was the introduction when he's talking yeah, about, it was the introduction. introduction. Let me... Talk amongst yourselves. Right. Emily, you had an idea that I was intrigued by when we were yeah. setting up. Well, I thought there could have potentially been a couple of different ways to read the last chapter. I think in some ways it's it's either like metaphor for or analogous to or maybe even just like cloaked in different terms or something. The, the commentary on the project of colonialism mm-hmm. and what that does to temporality and, um, and like subjects and the other and violence and stuff. Right. Because the, he draws on the same sort of terms and themes. Right. So he talks about, um, phantasm and phantasm of power. Right. And there's always these, there, there's these qualifications throughout the God's Phallus chapter that are like, this applies to power generally, but he's talking specifically in this chapter about, um, like, I don't know, what does he call it? Ecclesiastic power or something? What's the term? I'm so bad at religious Mm. stuff. (laughs) I mean, there's like, like, there's mm. divine power, divine libido. Right, okay, divine. So divine power, right? So this whole, it's a sort of like, not quite a genealogy, but a a little bit of genealogical about divine power. Allegorical genealogy in the sense that you're talking about relating it to, say, like, if we're going to think about it in terms of chapter five, which is like the phenomenology of colonial violence, mm-hmm. right? Maybe that's like, maybe allegory is the right word yeah. in the sense that, you know, so like Mbembe's, even just in the first couple pages of this chapter, like Mbembe's talking about how all religious acts are in some respect kind of erotic and sexual and tactile and sensuous um, and embodied acts, yeah. right? And he's also interested 
interested in kind of the way that there's like this uh, desire to like erase difference between like the subject and like the one. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I, at least like ways you two have talked about it, have like made me think about it in terms of, you know, is, and I don't know how to understand the relationship between the two, but if like our two terms to relate are like the universalizing uh, divine libidinous project of Christianity, and then like the uh, subjectivizing and subjecting conversion process of colonialism. Violence, of yeah, colonialism. violence, right? Yeah. Like that's <clears throat> that's the missing word from my strain. Like if he's like meta commenting on the relationship between those, and then another word that he's using throughout that I'm trying to think about this in terms of is embedding. Yeah. Right? He talks about embeddedness, and I think that's in the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a way of thinking about what he's trying to do. But I don't know how to, like, is the colonialism... He's talking, and, entangled a lot, yeah, too. Actually, yeah. that... I, so I found the, the quote <clears throat> that it. I was thinking of with, with his conception of time. It's on page 16. And he says, But of central interest was that peculiar time that might be called the time of existence and experience, the time of entanglement. There is no way to give a plausible account of such time without asserting at the outset three postulates. First, this time of African existence is neither a linear time nor a simple sequence in which each moment effaces, annuls, and replaces those that preceded it to the point where a single age exists within society. This time is not a series, but an interlocking of presents, pasts, and futures that retain their depths of other presents, pasts, and futures, each age bearing, altering, and maintaining the previous one. And then later he goes on to talk about, to critique the postmodern uh, obsession, you could say, with rupture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like event, rupture, rejecting, you know, the the origin and um, the, the linear temporality of modernity. Um, and then he says... Um, he talks about the present as an experience of time as a um, a mix of absences. And so I wonder if what he's doing with time in the conclusion, um, in kind of like paint, in, some, in one way he's painting a historic arc, but in another way he's doing oh, it in like in, in the God's Phallus chapter? Of yeah, in the God's Phallus chapter, but he's doing it in kind of like an <clears throat> anti-Hegelian way in <clears throat> a certain <throat> sense. How anti-Hegelian? Um, I mean, just kind of going against what he critiques Hegel of doing in the introduction okay. in a certain way. Is that, so is that also allegory, you think, you think? Hmm. What do you mean? That, that the divine power and the discussion of that, that history or histories or entanglement is, is allegorical in that sense to the history and entanglement and his stories of colonialism? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I was even thinking almost he was using his suggested methodology of thinking about temporality here mm. in that chapter. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah. yeah. I that's was, just an idea. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know that that's, like, what he's doing. I right. was thinking, too, that another possibility for why God's Phallus and why I end there is maybe just that like to talk about colonialism without thinking about its kind of like authorization from mm. the project mm. of Christianity yeah. and like yeah. how literally conversion took place, religious conversion took place <clears throat> on the continent, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like missing a key part of the puzzle, right? That like maybe that's it's kind of you can't talk about colonialism right. without talking about the role that Christianity played in it, in it, right? Just kind of. His, 
I don't know, like historically speaking, doesn't really right. mean anything, I guess, when you're right. doing this kind of complicated philosophy, but that that's like a sort of part that is not irrelevant to, right? I mean, I just kept thinking when he was like that conversion, you could sub in co- like colonial conquest yeah. for right. the conquest of, of the Christian conquest and conversion, that it yeah. was almost like an exact substitution at some points. So then the implication of that would be that Mm. for Mbembe, if this is how we're going to read him, that means that for Mbembe, like, the um, objective of Christianity to, like, er transcend and erase the difference between the human and the divine that culminates in, like, death, and and the need to convert others to that, to, like, establish a singular, like, transcendental truth or meaning or something is allegorical to the colonial attempt to, like, assert subjectivity and the phantasm of power at the expense of the radical otherness of Africa, right? Which then is erased in violence or, like, which which, which is erased in, vi- like, the violence turning it into nothingness or is converted, which is itself another kind of act of violence. Is that the allegory? I think so. Can I say, too, that I was thinking a lot about, um, <clears throat> about, uh, Uday Mattis book on liberalism and empire Ooh. during this and about Locke, right? Because <clears throat> Uday makes the claim. Oops, can I say that on air? Yeah. Makes the claim. <laughs> we know him. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's at the grad center. <laughs> um, ah, where did I write this note? Um, he makes a claim in that book that what uh, the sort of temporal claim that like what happened in uh, Great Britain's sort of colonization of India is that um, like history became European history and India was looked at as with sort of without time and without, mm-hmm. without history, right? It was looked at as this kind of place, it, like similarly to what Mbembe is talking about as this like savage kind of static, like place that's, that isn't right. doesn't have that, that telos of progress. Therefore it's without like culture and, and all these other things that we think of as constituting reason and, and, um, and uh, history and the the march of the human, right? The rational capacity to, like, improve one's conditions or whatever, right? Um, and I was thinking in this chapter on Christianity that it, like, totally made me rethink Locke, mm-hmm. actually. Huh. And huh. I was thinking that this is kind of a sidebar to this whole conversation in the book. But Go for it. I was thinking that, like, what if what if it was the case that what Locke did was not actually like contest the right. So he's sort of like his two treatises on government, right? It's like, he's trying to overturn divine power or Mm -hmm. the divine justification for power Mm -hmm. in order to, um, legitimate a kind of more democratic, you know, vaguely democratic Mm -hmm. rule. That's like by, uh, rational people and has as it's like core, um, ideal, like the preservation of individual, individual persons and property. Right. What, what if though, what he did was just like re instantiate divine power in the way that Mbembe has talked about, but Whoa. like stripped it of its, of its like divine, divine garb and clothed it yeah. in something else which is called liberalism. Which is brilliant because <clears throat> then it would like set up, not only is he doing what Payton says he's doing, like an anti-patriarchal, patriarchal power, mm-hmm. but like it's an anti-divine, divine power of empire. Yeah, so it's like, so ostensibly it allows for like freedom of religion Except that, except for 
a religion that does not cohere with a particular human subjectivity, which, according to Mbembe, looks like the universal, the one, the transcendent, all these things. Do we need to write another Always Already (laughs) podcast article together? I think so. I think that's brilliant. Like, rereading Locke through Mbembe. Yeah. there's another... But there's another... Too bad we're not in classes anymore. I know. (laughs) All the term papers I ever wrote sucked compared to the ones I've thought of just on these podcast episodes. There's, like, a whole (laughs) other aspect to, like, the Mbembe reading of Locke when... Um, and Bembe is like talking about property and, and, and domination in yeah. Christianity, right? So mm. it's like we read a exactly. couple of quotes. Yes. So 226, and Bembe writes At the opposite pole, Christian monotheism based itself on the idea of universal dominion in time as well as in space. It evinced an appetite for conquest, of which conversions were only one aspect. And then if we flip to the bottom of that page, The assertion of Christianity's political status rested on the notion that revelation must be historically verified. At Mm. the heart of this paradigm... empirically verified. (laughs) At the heart of this paradigm lay a totalizing project that viewed politics as its necessary instrument. The realm in which Christ's lordship was exercised was the world as a whole and all its activities in its full extent. For Christ's status as head of humanity followed Christianity's claim to universal empire. In other words, Christ's power was to rule was inseparable from his right of property, a right of property exercised naturally over so-called Christian lands. Hmm. Right? Like, I think you could just change a couple words, and that's, and that's a Locke. passage about Locke. That's Locke. Yeah. It may not even be about Locke. That is Locke. Yeah. That's like Locke talking about the emptiness uh-huh. of these other lands. Yeah. Yeah. I just, like, blew my mind. also wrote You're on the bottom of minds, 226, Emily. Christianity, liberalism, colonialism? Question <laughs> mark? <laughs> like, all one word. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I was just... I think... I think Uday was onto something. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's probable. <laughs> it's probable. Just saying. Um, <laughs> I sort of lost our train of thought. So now. that's another... Okay, so then I'll pose another question. Okay. Um... And that is um, a question that I have forgotten. So I'll pose another question. Um, and so that is, I mean, do we think that there's also an allegory, or how allegorical, because I think we've kind of feeling that there is an allegory here. How allegorical can we relate the violence of conversion that Mbembe is talking about in Chapter 6 mm. to the, like, uh, phenomenological violence of colonialism in Chapter 5? I mean, I think, especially in... His, I was struck by his discussion of arbitrariness, mm. like how it enables this slippage as if it's nothing. It's this effortless slippage once you've defined something as a lack. Once you've epistem- epistemologically defined something as a lack or a nothingness or a hollow or a void, it's a matter of an arbitrary flick of the finger whenever you decide to enact that in the form of like the colony the prison, the guard, like all the physical manifestations that lead to, to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think like, in a sense, the conversion is that um, arbitrary hmm. transition from the sort of epistemological way something's defined by Christianity slash the colonizer into its manifestation of that Um, violence and that death in the colony and also into the projection onto the subject. Could we just for a second try to say what we think he means by arbitrariness? Sure. 
that's a good that's a, a good I mean I think is it I mean is it a so you just use the word epistemologically is it an epistemic arbitrariness is it a like ontological arbitrariness I think it's am I like too committed to philosophy terms to help me <laughs> work through what he's but trying I, to say I, but like... I think he's trying to think about it on a philosophical and like more more specifically for him phenomenological although it verges into the epistemological to throw a lot of ologicals out there right. um, I think I think he's trying to understand it on that level yeah. as a way to like access what he wants to talk about throughout the book is like what uh, what is like the actual like lived experience of right. Africans that right. never gets represented and or is always represented as nothingness, pre-philosophical, anti-philosophical, right. negated, ex- native, animalistic, etc. etc. So you think you could also use and he doesn't use this phrase, but I always I feel like that the term that Butler uses a lot, which is the like condition the possibility, right? That like I feel like that's what he's getting at in the introduction too, that Africa is the condition of possibility for the West, right? Absolutely. I think that's right. But what is arbitrary? So, I mean, on, on page one, he first uses it. Um, page 173? Yes, page 173. Sorry, page one of chapter five. Um, he says he's concerned with two issues of... Um, the phenomenology of violence with respect to the colony. One is the burden of arbitrary. One is the burden of the arbitrariness involved in seizing from the world and putting to death what has previously been decreed to be nothing, an empty figure. And then on the next page, he oh. says, um, "Let us approach colonization rather as an arbitrary, contingent, stark fact, which goes to the facticity mm. thing. Let us approach it in its general generality and its bloody ugliness, which have made it." Universally, a dizzying tunnel haunted by death and decay. In short, an extreme idea on the borders of the ridiculous, which also goes to kind of... But that um, seems to me to be actually two different... Uses? Yeah, like arbitrary in two different senses, right? To me, the first one, the burden of arbitrariness involved in seizing from the world and putting to death what has previously been decreed to be nothing is more like irony, sort of, Hmm. right? Like... That that it's it's complete a completely arbitrary project to decide that something that you've already decided is nothing should also be dead. Dead. I think yeah, that's what that's how I read it though. Yeah. I think that's what I'm okay. And then how do you read the the second one? The or- second one is the arbitrariness of, uh, like, deciding that Africa was the place where call you know huh right I see. like that Africa should be the recipient of this these projections. yeah it was just like an arbitrary historical fact mm-hmm. okay I see mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense but which, I don't know which which I think makes sense is like under part of the project is to understand how Africa is the condition of possibility for the West because like one of the arguments is that like the poss- that why this I think this is like him trying to do Hegel a little bit that like the subject being arbitrary is in some ways the subject's f- like uh, effort to assert their mm-hmm. their subject their, their selves as subjects like uh, for themselves mm-hmm. and so thus like if arbitrariness if that's what arbitrariness is like the arbitrariness of the West vis a vis Africa is also the West's attempt to assert itself as subject right like I think you could also just say that it's both philosophically arbitrary and historically arbitrary yes. mm-hmm. and or, but, ma- or materially maybe i think also so, uh, yes and which is another quote that i wanted to read um so this is page 188 
That is, the native as nothing, as thing, and as animal is a creation of the colonizer. Oh, yeah. It is the colonizer who summons this nothing into existence, creates it as a thing, and domesticates it as an animal. This nothing, this thing, and this animal are a creation and object of the colonizer's imagination, the supreme example of the power of his or her arbitrariness. At the root of colonization is thus an inaugural act within a jurisdiction all its own, that of arbitrariness. And if we skip down several lines, um, colonial arbitrariness knows nothing, knows neither cause nor effect, since the one may be the other and vice versa. Since law lacks validity, one can submit everything to oneself. All that counts is the will, needs, desires, and whims of the colonizer. In the colony, everything is grist to the mill, against which the colonizer's faculty of representation exercises itself, and there is nothing before which he or she needs to humble himself or herself. In the same way, everything is the product of commandment. Oh, <clears throat> this was also another reason why I thought the phallus, God's phallus chapter was allegorical, because hmm. in this chapter... There are, he a couple times uses, like, religious language, mm-hmm. like commandment, mm-hmm. to talk mm-hmm. about the the phenomenon of, of colonization, right. colonialism. Colon- colon- yeah. Which, and, and also, because, like, as I was reading that quote, I was thinking, oh, like, uh, the arbitrariness is in part the, ab- the arbitrariness to convert the quote-unquote native into an animal mm-hmm. to be hunted, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that pa- those passages were really hard to yeah. read. I mean, about should, maybe we should talk about that. Like, I mean, the, stylistically, the fifth yeah. chapter, like the phenomenology of violence chapter. Um, the death part is yeah. quite violent yeah. in, it just, in its own language. Because it contains, like, just these passages of, like, both philosophers and, like, diaries of colonizers, um, like, talking about what they're doing. Oh, my God. So, yeah. like, the white philosophers are also colonizers. Yeah. Yeah. Mind blown. <laughs> I mean, like I knew that, but I didn't. It, I didn't catch on the subtlety of that, like side by side reading because in this chapter. I think, like in the intro, I think it's page eleven. He talks about he goes through his um, kind of. He almost lays plain the way he's going to allude to his critique of social theory and social theorists and philosophers, and then he even includes like Foucault and Adorno and like the school of you know critical theory um suggesting that even they are still stuck in this relationship to enlightenment thinking even if it's a critique of enlightenment and that actually sort of made me think of the way that he's trying to address post-colonialism right like as still in relation to that western projection even if it's a critique of it oh interesting so do you think that's a place where he like does the thing that he's critiquing Hmm. Interesting. I read what Rachel was saying, and I had this thought once or twice. So I was reading, especially the introduction, that Mbembe's trying to maybe do a similar thing vis-a-vis Africa that Spivak's trying to do, like yes. vis-a-vis India, and yes. in kind of subaltern speak. Mm-hmm. Because he's he like has this like very <clears throat> sarcastic like biting line about well, once we decide that like the subaltern have consciousness and agency, like wipe our hands, social right. theories like done and self congratulatory. Yeah. Right. Right, so let's, like, lay it bare in all of its brutality. Like, the the assumption of consciousness itself is premised upon, like, the brutal subjugation and enslavement of Africans. That's really interesting because then it's also, like, a meta-commentary about, like, 
himself. The phantasmic yeah. and the orgasmic in academia. Absolutely. Right? And like, yeah. what's, like, how we, I don't know. That may be a stretch, but. Keep going. That, that there's like something. I don't really know how it would work, I guess. Hmm. I, I was just, it would just occur to me that we call things sexy when they're like trendy to write yeah. about in academia and that there's something about like trying to disrupt that the like <clears throat> libidinal <laughs> element of academic work right. by by the grotesque yeah right? and by, by a style by also, also calling attention to the way that the grotesque has always constituted the West libidinally vis-a-vis the other yeah. and the slave and the yes. colonized specifically. Well, even how in academia, uh-huh. if somebody's talking about some atrocity and their analysis of it and someone else will say interesting, you know, and it's mm. sort of this, and I, I feel like his style in some way is messing with that. Like his style is grotesque and mm-hmm. um, gory at certain points in yeah. chapter five um, and like gut wrenching. And it disallows that in a certain way. Hmm. Do you think, do you think though, that it's, that it's, the text is subtly advocating for writing more grotesquely or using more vivid, vividly violent imagery to talk about violence or that hmm. it's like, hmm. cause I think there's also something about vaguely about like standpoint here, right? <laughs> like just in terms of, who's saying things and what things are thought to be important, right? The problem is that even critical theorists, when they're critical of reason, still think about world history as always emanating from the Enlightenment, right? Which is part of his critique of, like, Foucault. Yeah. And um, are all the social theorists, like, from Weber to Thun and Nietzsche onward. Right. But so (laughs) then, like, I guess it wouldn't be... It, it wouldn't be an improvement on that if they were like more vivid in their imagery of what violence looks like, right? It, it, like it matters who's writing yeah. the book on violence, maybe. And yeah, true. not only who's writing the book on violence, but whose depictions and whose depictions of violence are being used, right? Because right. like if it was like a, if it was a white author like talking about like like. Uh, people from Africa talking about violence in Africa and being like, I, the white uh, Euro-American, am going to comment on these, like, lived experience mm-hmm. of violence. That would not, that would be a very different thing right, than Mbembe yeah. deploying, like, the grotesquery of Western colonialism and of Western philosophy, like, in its own words, on its own terms, mm-hmm. right? Like, so it's not, so it's, I don't think it's just, like, write more violently or write more grotesquely, which I know is not what either of you were suggesting, yeah. um, but, like, write more grotesquely if what you're doing is like calling attention to the grotesqueness um of like of the conditions of possibility for like western philosophy or something mm-hmm. Hmm. God, this book is so intense there's so many levels i'm having i feel like i need a visual or <laughs> you know what my visual is like the movie inception <laughs> Oh, no. Like, he's incepted us. (laughs) A world inside a dream, inside a dream, inside a dream, inside a dream. Where do we spin our top? What do you guys (laughs) think about... um, I'm kind of fascinated by his relationship to reason in this, because he uses it sometimes in a kind of more familiar way of critiquing Western Enlightenment philosophies um, 
of reason, Lockean reason. And on the other hand, he uses it in sort of like a cheeky way and sometimes uses it um, to talk about his reason or mm. like the reason that exists in Africa separate from the relationship of negation to the West. And also the, the, the first line of the whole thing of the introduction Speaking rationally about Africa is not something that has ever come naturally. Doing so at this cusp between millennia comes even less so. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that naturally and rationally are in the same sentence because I, I didn't know, like, is he critiquing the idea that rationality is never actually natural? Like he's denaturalizing it as it exists in like Western Mm -hmm. philosophy like man's natural capacity for reason and rationality and showing it as constructed or is he like taking that for granted and talking about how with africa so in, in other words is he being cheeky and embodying the viewpoint of reason of the west or is he speaking from his you know from the mm. african perspective and i thought there were a lot of places there was kind of like an interesting play of whose reason and perspective um that confounded me interesting I mean part of it is that I think it's both and like the in the way you were thinking about it Rachel like um, it's both like the cheeky comment on the uh, violence of Western reason um, and also like his reason mm -hmm. which is which is also like a kind of cheeky uh, like postulate or like mode of writing because you know he says that like in the um, uh, in the phenomenology and, like, epistemology of Africa, like, reason is impossible, right? The mm -hmm. native slave animal can't reason. Right. But there's also, I mean, in the intro, right, he calls out, like, mainstream political science and development economics as, mm -hmm. like, culprits of this, like, erasure negation of Africa. Yeah. Of Africa's, like, material existence and and right it's tempo it's temporality and all these things and i i think it, it could also be cheeky in the sense that like when we're doing good social science we do like you know research that uh, uh coheres with these accepted rational modes of inquiry <laughs> and that like and so there's this thing there's this like dual kind of impossibility which is that like we didn't tell the story of Africa vis-a-vis -vis right. the West, um, on, I mean, it's hard to like use the, it's hard to talk without the jargony terms, right? Without, I don't know, the, the other, the negation, but there's like, and who's the we, this is very complicated. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I, I want to say something and I don't have the words for it. Um, that there's right. That there's, we already did the work. We in the West already did the work of, um, negating Africa as a site of like human history, uh, human, uh, 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 human subject subjectivity. Right. And so to now like speak about it with the, within the confines of what counts as knowledge and these, um, qualifications for reasonableness and rationality is like an impossibility that we've created, right. Yeah. That we've like negated the thing that we're trying to now, on on the terms under the terms in which we're trying to now speak about it and tell some kind of like truth about it but we like i don't know do any nothing 
Yes. No, no. I mean, I, I think that makes sense. I, I don't know that I can add. It made no sense. No, it makes sense. No, it makes sense. It makes sense because I think one of the I'm points really sweaty. that he's making <laughs> um, in, the, <laughs> in the introduction and then is like uh, unpacked in, phenomenologically unpacked in chapter five um, is the like lack of the West to be able to understand Africa is other than like a tableau of nothingness upon which to project the West's own ideas, concepts, reason, subjectivity, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Cause you know, he talks about like when uh, people from the West go to study Africa, there's no actual facts about Africa. There's none. And I'm here, I'm looking at page seven. Um, the criteria that African agents accept is valid. The reasons they ex- exchange within their own instituted rationalities are to many of no value, right? There's no actual concern or even expectation or like possibility that Africans could ever like speak in, speak in a language of reason. Um, and that thus, like the only thing that the West can do vis-a-vis Africa is reproduce its own, right. uh, like its own concepts and ideas and so on that were premised in the first place upon the like colonization and subjugation and radical othering of Africa. Right. Well, yeah. So like the, the inability to see an African reason is, stems from the fact that reason in the West is thought to be, have, take on a particular universal, I know that yes. sounds like a, no, no, yeah, yeah. no a particular yeah. universal character, right. a certain universal yeah. character. So, so that, but it's like, also very so there is no reason that is not reason of this nature. And thus like Africa is reasonless, reasonless. Yes. Yeah. It's like always, as he says, like lack, absence, negation, so on and so forth. Right. Like the only, um, originator of positive interpretation can be the West. I thought the passages were where the colonizers were talking about the like frenetic town centers were really fascinating because I'm like, what year was that written in like what a 1600 year or something that like, I can't imagine that British probably later than that, probably like in the 18th century. Right? Yeah, that like I can't imagine that like New York City didn't look like that, or London didn't look like that. You know, yeah. <laughs> like it's just I don't know. <laughs> That's not a very sophisticated point, but it just sort of made me laugh. That I was right. like, really, you can't. When I go into Midtown, I'm like what it's happening. Nothing makes sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but that's exactly it. Like the inability to see chaos in, right. In your own, in the, in the, in the world even. of the, the colonizer and seeing it as like the base, the jumping off point is inherently ordered. Right. It's like, there's a, it's like naturalizing the jumping off point that's ordered in the West yeah. because like the even default it, way of thinking is ordered. right. Cause if, even if it seems chaotic, it's still ultimately governed by reason mm-hmm. as opposed to utterly, like utterly, absolutely the far less one can go lacking reason. Yeah. So it's like, interesting. I I'm desperate to understand chapter six more. I think partly because in the end of chapter five, cause I think that's partly where he starts to really go towards the, so what now? You know, like, um, until that point, he's, he's in certain ways and in his own tropes and original thinking, of course, um, building on like decolonial scholarship or Mm -hmm. scholarship that's questioning the 
Orientalist scholarship. Like I thought about Said so much of the time yeah. about like Western projections of desire and lack and this and that onto another subject who's just chilling, doing their thing and suddenly right. becomes this like subject through the eye of the beholder of those desires in the West. But then I think that's why I'm so desperate to understand chapter six and the end of chapter five better, like the sort of like 15 phases of death or like what happens after the death moment, yeah. because that's like I think how we get from those critiques that exist that he's building on in his own language to his idea of the post-colony, which is different than obviously post-colonialism. Don't you think that the core, I mean, to me, the core difference between this book and something like Spivak or something like Said is, is the uniqueness of the African slave trade historically mm-hmm. yeah. and how the, how like slavery is a unique kind of death of the other in that it was like, like, right. We talked about Hortense Fillers before, like yeah. fleshly and yeah. that, that like not living, but not dead. Social death. Sort right. Of, it's yeah. like Orlando Patterson's <clears throat> like social death. Yeah. And he uses that language a couple of times throughout too in chapter five. Yeah. I don't really know how, if that, I mean, that doesn't go so far to answering the, like, what, the what now. But I think it troubles the what now, right? Because it's not about, it's not just about, like, seeing the world differently and retelling history, right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, confronting yeah the, confronting the horrible. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, as he puts it near the end of chapter five, like, how is it possible to live while going to death or how is it possible to live in death? Yeah. But I mean, I think that it's not as simple as just saying like, let's not forget right. what we did. Right. There's exactly. something like, <laughs> I don't but, know. There's something like really kind of urgent about, yeah. about do, it. Is, do we think the audience of the, so what is Western academics or people in Africa? I think both because I think, huh. I, I mean, I don't know. It seems like it might be both because on the one hand, it's stemming from his methodological project of getting out of that Western capsule of thinking, that enclosed, like, self-referent tautological way of thinking. On the other hand, he's speaking from the perspective of a Cameroonian. And on the other side, he's so much a part of um, the Western Academy. Like, he was at Duke, you know, like he... And so... Whether he wants to be or not, he's read by us and people in the West. Yeah. So I think, like, there is a way. And maybe that actually goes back to how he uses reason in different modes. Like, he's talking both mm-hmm. um, from the perspective of um, the way the West defines reason in its particularity as a universal thing, as well as the possibility of reason in the post-colony as something not determined by the West and not as simply a negation of the West's universalizing well, reason. What if we frame it in this way, right? So one of the targets, again, in the intro is development economics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, what does... If, if you work in development economics, like, what's your takeaway from reading this book? What are the policy implications? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, but, like, that's what a, are that's they? A personal, that's <laughs> no, a, I mean, like... That's not. a personal vendetta that You've I just... You've never been asked that question before, <laughs> you mean, by what your own friends in the um, but not even, right, because I think it's something more, I think the the weight or the gravity of this is not just, like, we need to think differently about Africa 
right, not think of it as a, right? He's not saying, let's stop thinking of Africa as nothingness and let's stop thinking of Africa as negation. He's saying, let's think about how thinking about Africa as nothing. Yeah. Like, like, like facilitates and, and like, like what, what is that, that phenomena and like not, not get rid of it, but like confront it. But I think that goes back to the arbitrariness. Like, I think that's where I was struck by it is also what are the mechanisms that of power that a allow that construction of Africa as nothingness, as hollowness, as lack to come to be produced in the first place. And how does that facilitate and how has that facilitated things like the slave trade mm-hmm. and things like um, the very literal material, real violent, impl- the phenomenology of violence in the colony. And so I think you're right. It's not just let's like dear Westerners don't think about Africa this way. It's like, look at how this construction A was enabled and B what it enabled. Yeah. All right. I have another question for you too. So, near the very last page of the book, you're, in the conclusion... You're, you're cheeky today. Why is that? You're just like, I'm going to ask all the questions, and then I don't know how to answer them. No. <laughs> uh, to page 242, um, Bembe says, um, it is this, quote-unquote, song of shadows, its metamorphoses, its sight, hearing, sense of smell, taste, touch, in short, its expressive power, to which we have all given the ultimately meaningless name of post-colony. Beyond this word, we have been interested in the experience of a period that is far from being uniform and absolutely cannot be reduced to a succession of moments and events, but in which instance moments and events are, as it were, on top of one another, inside one another. In this sense, we must say that the post-colony is a period of embedding, a space of proliferation that is not solely disorder, chaos, and madness, but emerges from a sort of violent gust with its language, its beauty and ugliness, its ways of summing up the world. So, like, what do we think about the way he's using the word post-colony in that quote, or, like, the fact that this book is called On the Post-Colony, or, um, like, you know, we've been dancing around it, like, the relationship between this and, like, other quote-unquote post-colonial thinkers. Like, I'm interested in the status and the work that, like, the word post-colony does for Mbembe. I mean, I think it's another... I, I think you could read it. One way of reading it is as a another expression of arbitrariness, right? That post-colony is supposed to, or post-colonial is supposed to designate a time in universal human history march toward progress. But like in its in in naming the colony as a moment in history, and that calling our post saying that we are post that, like, reinscribes the violent erasure of Africa as a right. place also with history and with yeah. reason and maybe Telos, maybe not, right? Like, right. So, like, just, you know, like, white academics like us, like, being like, oh, and post-colonialism, like, he's not going to let us get away with that. Right. right. That's kind of... Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the ways I was thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, to me, like... This, whenever I read, like, what I got out is the colony as lived, um, Mm -hmm. and the colony as, um, where does he say it really well? On page, um, 174, um, when he's talking about Fanon. 
Oh, like 174 onto page 175. Yeah, exactly. Um, Fanon surely begins as he does, too, because ordeal for the colonized. The colony is primarily a place where an experience of violence and upheaval is lived, where violence is built into structures and institutions. It is implemented by persons of flesh and bone, such as the soldier, the French commandant, the police officer, and the native chief. It is sustained by an imaginary, that is, an interrelated set of signs that represent themselves in every instance as an indisputable and undisputed meaning. Da, 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 da. It produces a culture. It is a cultural praxis. So, the, yeah, I mean, that's all to say, I think the critique of post-colonialism as the post imply, like whether to use a hyphen between post and colonial mm. and what he does not for the record. Right. He does not. For the um, and the whole idea of, I like is it, said the listener as though there's only one. <laughs> there might, there might be only billions. Hi, mom. All the listeners. Sorry. Hey mom. Um, or rather, grandma. Yeah. <laughs> grandma. I lost my train of thought. But I'm yeah, sorry, it's, it's a it's a it's a lived place. Oh, you're talking about, and it's not a physical place, uh-huh. and in the same time that it's material, meaning yes. it's a response. Like a colony isn't simply a delineated territorial border. Like the British colony established their borders around this place, and it's in that it's a projection of an imaginary. And the product of an imaginary, but it's real in that it's flesh and bone that are violently. Um, yes, especially like I want to keep reading the quote where you stopped, Rachel, because it's just such a, it's so incredible. All this might be called, this is page 175, all this might be called the spirit of violence. The spirit makes the violence omnipresent. It is presence. Presence not deferred, except occasionally, but spatialized, visible, immediate, sometimes ritualized, sometimes dramatic, very often caricatural. Skip a sentence. Thus, there is no violence in a colony without a sense of contiguity, without bodies close to one another, fleetingly or longer, bodies engaged in particular forms of fondling and concubinage, Hmm. a commerce, a coupling. Power in the colony involves a tactile perception of the native that makes this violence more than simply an aesthetic in an architecture, which I think is like that materiality of violence that you're talking about. Yeah, it's not territorial, but it's material and it's um that's all that's the end of the sentence and language and language (laughs) but i don't quite understand what's going on with the category of language in this work me neither all right i'm also wondering i don't know if this is just i don't know how to account for what's happening but what i'm about to say we so much of this of the metaphor of violence and of colonizing and even in the chapter god's phallus is like the sexual conquest Mm. and yet we've like not really (laughs) been talking about it in those terms and i don't know why i don't know if it's like i mean i think i think yeah maybe or like the i mean we're obviously concerned about like what this means for it there's a critique of academia and academics here that we're trying to parse out but there's also like i don't know i I think maybe there's some hesitation when we think of ourselves as white white academics in the west to say that we're like sexually conquesting like in the like in our like white yeah yeah 
It's hard to confront. <laughs> which, which, again, is, like, maybe another reason why there's all that, like, language of grotesquery in yeah. that yeah. chapter. Because it's like, no, actually, like, your Western philosophy or Western academia that you think is, like, so sterile and proper and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what it yeah, actually like is and really what it rapey. actually does, right? Yeah, totally. exactly. Yeah. Um, it's really so, like, so then, yeah, maybe, like, that's it. That, like, even we can only, like... Uh, we can only act like we or I can only actually like confront that, mm-hmm. um, like at a remove, to be like, yeah, wasn't Hegel really like rapey about Africa? Right. Whereas, yes. like, no, like actually, like we we are we are still yeah. like producing our libidinal investments in a certain like notion of uh, rationality and the other and Africa that like but, underpins our efforts as academics. Yeah, or something. right, and that is still it's still writes in the vein of the legacy of the rapiness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's still raping. Yes. Oof. Brutal. All right. But we have to stop there. Okay. <laughs> do we want to try to say what this book is about? The you summary can. can do that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a joke. I, I suggested at the outset that we should try to conclude by saying, what do we think this book oh, is about? Oh, right. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. It's about the phenomenology of colonial violence. Okay, fine. The technical terms. Yes, so I, I don't have anything better than that, though. Like, I wish I had something better, but... Yeah. Because the book's a lot more richer than the phenomenology of colonial violence. Even right. though it's an incredible phenomenology of colonial violence, it's also a bunch of other things. Yeah, I think it's really... I, I We keep sort of joking about the meta levels, but I think that is also what it's about in some yeah. ways, right? The, like, piling or the, like, entanglements and, yes. right? There's a kind of, like... Um, there's, There's no a kind escape. of worldview in here that's about, like, entanglements rather mm-hmm. than, I don't know. Which, like, makes sense also in his book, or I feel it's a book or an article, like, it's Provincializing France, where mm-hmm. he, like, mm-hmm. um, like does, like, vis-a-vis the French in Africa, what, like, Chakrabarty does vis-a-vis, like, Europeans and uh, India. Mm-hmm. So, but, which is operating on that same kind of level, I think. Yeah. Very clever. Lots to say. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I need to read it about 17 more times. Yeah. Cool. Well, good thing you have lots of free time. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> um, so come back where we have a very vexed, complicated uh, Tumblr friend question. Bye. Everybody's favorite segment. My Tumblr friend from Canada. Um, so we have a hard question to answer. Yes. Um, it's not quite as light and uh, playful as our recent questions have been. So this is from an anonymous listener. I have a question about. Uh, I have a question regarding the ethics of an advisor advisee relationship. I was admitted into a combined MA-PhD program last fall and selected my advisor in the spring. I write to you because I have the suspicion that he may be experiencing early-onset dementia or Alzheimer's. 
I started noticing that he would forget important dates, plan a study meeting, and become fixated on minor details that arose during interaction. When he seized upon these things, there was an unreasonably aggressive undertone to his speech. I don't think it's just a personality quirk. When I speak to the more senior grad students, they pretty much all accept that he has been on the decline recently, Mm -hmm. mentally. My advisor is a single man with no children, and his family lives on the other side of the country. Thus, if his mental capacity is diminishing, I feel an obligation to be the one who tells him about it. I do genuinely worry that he could hurt himself if his cognitive functions are declining. That being said, I'm not a doctor and not in a position to diagnose him with any type of affliction. What are the criteria I should apply for determining whether or not I should speak to him about this possible problem? How do you think I should initiate this discussion? My first instinct is I don't know if you should be the one to do it. Yeah. Because, A, we don't really know what kind of friends and community he has. Like, just because he doesn't have kids or a partner doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't have people that he, you know, whatever. Although maybe you have insight into that. I'm not sure. Um, My first instinct is to see if there's one person in the department that's like a former colleague of his or something like another faculty member that you trust that you could kind of like tactfully one-on-one talk to to get their take about it and they might right. also have a better or sense a of department what chair yeah. yeah or like an ombudsman in the unit like your university has an ombuds person yeah i think also i mean i guess this is information you could glean from the internet but sometimes it's helpful when you as a person who's being affected by what you think another person might be going through um it's it can be really helpful to like talk to an alzheimer's doctor or you know just reach out see like if if in fact those are symptoms of alzheimer's right or whatever it is that you think i mean this you might have experience with this so this might be something that you already know but there there's uh, people who work in those areas will have um not only the sort of technical knowledge to, uh, you know, work toward a diagnosis, but how you interact with, with somebody. And, like, the language to exactly. use if you feel like it's, you should be the person to talk to or, or even the language, Or even the language to use to talk to yeah, the department chair exactly. or to talk to a faculty member, right? Yeah. So you don't maybe, um, I mean, and this might just be my, like, my feminist aversion to the word aggressive, but you know, like a word like aggressive, um, which is apt and and descriptive in this kind of situation might not be the word you would say to a department chair or something, right? Because there could be, there might be like clinical, right. Clinical terms that could help you, you know, actually, um, demonstrate the sort of gravity of the situation beyond just like personality conflict or something like that. My other thought was that, I mean, a lot of times anecdotally as a total non-doctor, um, you know, just thinking through this, when word recall starts to go or when thinking becomes harder, remembering becomes harder, like people are keenly aware of it. Mm -hmm. Like they're already aware that they're forgetting certain things. Yeah. And so I don't know that, like, having it pointed out, I would worry that that it's possible while it comes from a place of, like, really, like, admirable concern. Like, it might anger the person um, or kind of increase that um, aggressive under hostility. Hostility. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, another thing that I would be thinking about is I think 
I think the advice of like talking to somebody else in the department or a colleague or something is really good advice, but you just have to be really careful with that about who you right. talk to. Um, cause like if it's someone who's been best friends with this person for a really long time, like they might be resistant to like, yeah. you know, think about the, that their friend is, has like a different relationship to the world and to thought and speech and all of that. Um, or like, you know, if your advisor is older, like, you know, like being faced with someone like people who, you know, like are so invested in like their cognitive capability or what they understand to be their cognitive capabilities. Um, yeah. like, you know, confronting others with like the loss of that might provoke reactions in other people that are not your advisor mm -hmm. that might be negative, mm -hmm. especially like given the general relationship between academia and ability and disability, right. um, which just like, I think makes this really hard, which I'm sure the listener is aware of, but, yeah. um, so that means that like, I think that, you know, if you, I mean, ideally there's someone in your program or I'm assuming someone in your program, like ideal, like ideally, ideally there's someone who, you know, is friends with your advisor. That's not in your program mm -hmm. that you also have some sort of relationship with or that trust. you could go to yeah. or trust or something that's probably unrealistic. What might be more realistic in an ideal scenario is if there's a person who meets a person like in your department, in your program who meets the criteria of both, like having a good relationship with uh, your advisor and someone whom you personally trust, have some sort of trust or relationship with beyond like, I took one class with you or beyond like you're in my program. If there's that person, that might be the person to reach out to. Yeah. And I think also, um, I'm not sure if this is like an advisor that's going to be a dissertation advisor versus a you know, thesis advisor and it's more short term. So it's a combined MA PhD. So could potentially. Right. So I'm not right? sure which one, but I think like, because of that, um, I would consider if there's someone else that would be better suited, um, so that you don't have to keep, you know, or if there's another role this person could play besides a central advisor, cause you also need to look out for your own, yeah. for yourself, you know? And like doing that might actually like be the most kind to both of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really tough situation. It's really tough. It's so hard too. There's so many weird, like personal politics about what what's reasonable to say to somebody who's in a position of power over yeah. you, and and like know. different styles of advising relationships, right? Yeah. If someone's like, oh, if I have an advisee, like I'm really tough on them and like put them through the ringer, and that makes them a better academic. Then like some of the things you highlight is like behaviors or patterns that you're thinking about with your advice. That person might just read as like, oh, you're not like responding well to like his style. Yeah. yeah. So that mm. also makes it hard. Yeah. yeah. But there's no easy answer. Obviously. Yeah. So, so like if we're going to try to summarize our advice, it's basically what, like, see if you can talk to like a doctor who knows about Alzheimer's, um, and the, like figure out the words to use yes. that are, appropriate to right. describing that condition and then to bring, someone in the apart department right or the apartment or like you know i mean or like apartment pants or like i mean i, I don't know um, i mean like if you're like university has like an accessibility office like is that oh, a possible yeah you know or like yeah. what, what, whatever the name of that office in your particular university those also might be people to talk with oh yeah they might know also like procedures yeah you know, like there might be, there might be protocols in place. Right. That already exist. So you don't, you wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. 
Um, that's and, a great idea. And even if, like, there aren't, like, those are the people who understand the, like, conjunction of disability and academia. Right. Like, better than 98% of academics mm-hmm. do. Yeah, so. seriously. Yeah, that's a great idea. Talk with somebody at accessibility or whatever it's I mean, I, 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 I like that's all the CUNY idea. school that's the accessibility office. Yeah. Because so. then you also, I think, I don't know, to make an appointment with a doctor and sort of, like, armchair diagnose them yeah. as not the person themselves is problematic. Oh, yeah. I guess I was just thinking, but oh, you, you guys casually. know this. Yeah, because okay. I, like, went to UC San Diego, so all my friends are doctors. Like, <laughs> calling your friend oh, who's a see. doctor and being like, hey, what do you think about these symptoms? Oh, yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, like, yeah. what are the words you use to talk about them? You know, right. I didn't sense. mean, like, make an appointment. You know, oh, okay. but, like, hopefully, Sorry. you know, like... I take it back. You have I'm a really Facebook that. friend whose cousin is a doctor who, yeah. like, went to some, you know, who's right. now you a neurologist them an email or, or something, yeah. You know, like, hopefully, like, if you can reach out and be like, hey, I... But again, like, that's hard because then it's like, well, who's going to see that post and, like, who are they going to think that yeah. I'm talking about? And Well, then, yeah. So that's everyone complicated knows someone too. who's a doctor, right? Yeah. It's not Maybe. just me. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I had another thought, but I forgot what it was. I mean, so, so like, I think we should also acknowledge that, like, the relationship between, like, about, like, the, the inability of academia to, like, respond to disability and like the ableism of academia is like very strong and the disability academia relationship is very fraught which is like yeah. another layer on top of this that makes responding to it very challenging yeah. yeah so again that's maybe then why like maybe the first step is like if you have an accessibility office which hopefully your university has um maybe that's yeah if it doesn't place. you should start one and then <laughs> right on top of this other thing that you know you're thinking about on your studies and stuff you know like some disability justice work at your university. Yeah. Wait, like, is the like if there's a disability justice organization? I mean, that's maybe weirder because then you have to. That's not actually not a good idea. Yeah, I'm not sure where you were. Then there's like private. But I was gonna say like, well, the, never mind. I think we've idea. answered it. Forget that. <laughs> idea. Forget it. All right. So Rachel, anonymous uh, listener, answered the question. We hope this was helpful for you. Bad cop. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, good luck. Good luck. Good luck, and thanks, thanks for, for writing. Thanks yeah, for listening. Thanks for writing. Um, okay, so any other any other thoughts? Tweet us, Facebook us. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Patreon us, patron us, patronize us. Patronize us. Let's be patronize honest, us you and probably patronize us. It. <laughs> um, uh, we will patronize you right back. And I don't know, so here's, I have a thing to tell the listeners. Um, I, I doubt many of them do this, uh, but if you listen through the end of the episode and like through the little music and the like spiel that we always have at the end about like our website and stuff, sometimes there are outtakes. There might are. be an especially funny outtake today. Oh. Or maybe I'll like put some past outtakes in the end but so I'm if they've sure. missed. And I'll tell you what, if anyone wants to go through all of the episodes, go to the end and like clip all of the outtakes and put them into one music file for them, I will give them five dollars. Five dollars. Five bucks? I'm gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, I'm not. First I've heard about Alright, priority to other members of the Always Already Podcast collective subject. <laughs> but really that's all our listeners to are part of our collective assemblage Absolutely. Alright, collective assemblage subject. Have a great time. Have an always already day. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Ready Podcast, which is created by B. Altman, Rachel Brown, Emily Crandall, James Palini Jr., and John McMahon.
Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at alwaysalreadyon. Rate us on iTunes, support us on Patreon, subscribe to RSS feed, and all of those other wonderful, excellent things. Thank you, as always, to Leah for the intro music, her song, Static Loops. And thank you to B for his cover of Over the Hills and Far Away, which you heard in between segments, and his cover of Landslide, which you're hearing right now. Until next time, have a lovely day. Are you dumb? <laughs> they have to be like, that was a joke. Get it, guys? We all flop sometimes. It's what makes us human. How do you know I'm human? Yeah, it's very humanist alien. of you. It's fine. I think Emily's the post-human. I think she's a cyborg. I came from space. Are you recording this? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Sayonara. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Stay with us. Emily, stay. You've been gone all day. Stay with us.